Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Professor Lorraine Coe about ecological thinking. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to see you. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I grew up in the 1940s and 50s. I was born in 1937. I grew up in the 40s and 50s in Kingston, Ontario, which is a small university city in the English-speaking part of Canada. I went to Queen's University in Kingston directly out of high school and started by studying French and German, and then shifting later to philosophy, where I did a four-year BA degree, a four-year honors BA in philosophy. And it was only after several years of travel abroad and teaching in the UK that I returned to Canada to study philosophy and to complete a PhD. So um, this is continuing the answer to to your question, I can't remember how I came to ecological thinking. It had something to do with needing to situate it, situate it, sort of inverted commas, situate my thinking in ways that had less to do with specific places and more to do with locating or positioning it in ways that took the multiplicity of being into account. Although I would not have thought it that way then but I think that's what it was about. Um, But ecology, therefore, in in that line of thinking, ecology seemed to provide a model for thinking and being that avoided exclusion and incorporated a range of surroundings and interdependencies. And thinking about place and situation and prospects for being and knowing well gave a certain appeal to the vague idea of ecology with the interdependencies it presupposes. Okay, <clears throat> so uh, this, this idea of thinking of, uh, ecologically moves away from thinking about isolated, separated items. It moves away from that standard, um, the cup is on the table thing. It moves away from thinking about isolated and separated items. So this goes along with your question about autonomy which I resist actually only when or if it seems to mean radical separation that denies the facts and value of interdependence sort of all the way up and all the way down. And I guess that's its wisdom too. I came across Rachel Carson 
in this connection, sort of by accident, as I was reading about ecology, and I was drawn, I suppose, most of all, to her ways of studying things, to put it too gently, generally, but ways of studying things in their places within with the interdependence between knowing and place that this involved. That, 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 that's an idea that occurred to me um, only as I went along. It, it was not there as a framing thought, but it became clear that that's what it was all about. So these thoughts, if perhaps oddly, bear completely upon my, on my hesitations about autonomy and about excessive autonomy. Since it seems to stand, the idea of autonomy seems to stand in the way of interdependence. And I think interdependence is characteristic of so much of the world, both human and other than human, and both in, in life and in, in, in thinking. Um, so to put it rather baldly, I guess the wisdom of ecological thinking and of advocacy have to do with a belief, with a belief that the world is a place of interdependencies, whether they're benign or sometimes malign. And I don't mean to paint a rosy picture in which all of this is good, but I do want to suggest some of the richness that comes from a recognition of the cooperative prospects of even so solitary a process as knowing. So that's, so the vague idea, what's the last thing you wrote down? Um, about Rachel Carson's scientific practice. Oh yes, as I was reading about ecology and things too generally. So these thoughts, um, if, if say, so, Initially, ecology wasn't there as a framing thought. It sort of became a framing thought. But these, these do, thoughts do bear upon my hesitations about excessive autonomy, since it seems to stand in the way of the interdependence that's characteristic of so much of the world, both human and other than human. Or to put it rather baldly, I guess the wisdom of ecological thinking and also of advocacy have to do with the belief that the world is a place of interdependencies, be they benign or at times malign. I'm not meaning to paint a rosy picture in which all of this is good, but I do want to suggest that some of the richness, that, 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 that I do want to suggest some of the richness that comes from a recognition of the cooperative project prospects of even so seemingly solitary a process as knowing. Oh, so ecological naturalism um, really just involves not trying to de develop um, systems of knowing from a, a remote and abstract uh, conception of the world, but engaging naturally, engaging with the interconnections that naturally inform human lives and to see whether um, the ecological naturalism of plants and animals growing together can be mirrored and can mirror these complex interconnections. Often the terms that you ask about came to me more by chance than as a result of specific inquiry, such as the insight into interdependence as strength and hence as a positive human impossibility. 
So of course, all of this can be dangerous as your autonomy question suggests when it's taken to excess, when it becomes an all or nothing commitment. But I, and I don't really have a model for epistemic pluralism. And indeed I may have given a misleading, a misleading impression if the sense is that I'm arguing for many different truths, all of which maintain simultaneously. But I want to think about knowing in ways that allow for a complexity, especially where multiple meanings of complex situations may be at issue. This is too large a thought for a short answer, but it's the kind of thing I'm, I'm, I'm pondering. How I've developed the idea of ecological thinking, particularly was your question. And I suppose it comes initially as a form of resistance to thinking about things or events or experiences in isolation, particularly isolation, artificially connected with the idea that you can think about them better if they're in isolation. So it comes to thinking about things or experiences um, not as autonomous occurrences or entities that, are, that, that stand alone, which they often may be, but thinking ecologically shows the limitations of such discrete individuation. I think of perhaps only tacitly. I'm not saying it always has to be, but often it's how I find my way into thinking about ideas or things or events. So that's a rather roundabout linking way of thinking, but I think my way of thinking is a rather roundabout way of thinking. Well, the next thing I've got, first of all, is could I explain my interest in ecological thinking? Now, I think that's all I had about that. So about advocacy, um, I, I didn't actually write down a response to this, so I hope it'll be working off the cuff. Um, it seems to me that advocacy has a bad name generally in, in political practice and social practice and knowledge and so on. But it seems to me that one of the ways that, that our, RT, our IT ideas come to gain traction and come to claim a hearing is that we can in various ways, perhaps as teachers or as philosophers speaking and talking, um, advocate for those ideas, advocate showing that the, this, is, this is the way, it, this is the way uh, ideas are interconnected. This is the way processes, this is the way forms of life are interconnected and bear upon one another. And uh, advocacy involves being able to say, uh, being able to argue in favor of, of, of a particular position, a particular way of thinking uh, with various examples and uh, I guess similarities and differences in place and, and becoming objects of analysis. So, um, in the role of advocacy? Well, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about advocacy as, as being able to argue in favor of, of ideas and places and, and practices by, by showing the part they play in interdependent, interdependence. It, so it moves, the idea of advocacy moves away from thinking about isolated and separated items so uh, it, it connects with your question of, about autonomy, which I resist, that is to say I, autonomy I resist, only when or if it seems to mean radical separation that denies the facts and value of interdependence. I guess that's its wisdom as well as its danger. Um, 
And I came across Rachel Carson in this regard, sort of by accident, as I was reading about ecology and was drawn to, most of all, to her ways of th studying things, to put it too generally, studying things in their places and the interdependencies between knowing and place. Um, an idea that occurred to me only as I went along. It was not there as a sort of framing thought, but um, they're, they're, these are thoughts that also came out of my real hesitations about excessive autonomy, since it seems to stand in the way. Uh, autonomy particularly as it's central in uh, positivistic Anglo-American philosophy, since it seems to stand in the way of, the, of, of recognizing and acknowledging the interdependence characteristic of so much of the world, both human and other than human. So to put it rather boldly, I guess the wisdom of ecological thinking and of advocacy has to do with the belief that the world is a place of interdependencies, whether they're benign or sometimes malign. And I don't mind to paint a rosy picture in which all of this is good, but I do want to suggest some of the richness that comes from a recognition of the cooperative prospects of even so seemingly solitary a process as knowing. Right, yeah, that sounds... Next. So I do have another paragraph about that also, actually. Yeah. Um, often, often the terms that you ask about came to me more by chance than as the results of any specific inquiry, such as, such as this insight into the interdependence well, as strength as well as a positive human possibility. Because in the liberal masculine world, inter interdependence is, is, is a bad thing, a weakness. Um, but I want to understand it as a positive human possibility. And of course, all of this can be dangerous, as your autonomy question suggests, when it's taken to, to excess, when it becomes an all or nothing commitment. I don't really have a model for epistemic pluralism, which you also act to ask about. And indeed, I, I may well have given a misleading impression if the sense is that I'm arguing for many, many different truths all of which pertain simultaneously. But I want to think about knowing in ways that allow for a complexity, especially where multiple meanings of complex situations may be at issue. And this is a too large thought for a short answer, but it bears some pondering. And I think it runs, practically speaking, through much of the writing I do and through much feminist and post-colonial uh, epistemology and, and thinking about knowledge. What would it mean to naturalize epistemology? I've never really been sure about that, and I've never been sure that it was a worthy goal. Um, I think naturalizing epistemology is meant to take epistemology into the world and not and taking it away from being a, a formal inquiry that sets out formal necessary and condition sufficient conditions for the existence of knowledge. So I think naturalizing epistemology does mean in its in its in its one of its easiest articulations, it involves um, trying to figure out not in a sort of sloppy everyday way, but in a more engaged way how people how how knowledge actually 
is established and works and is challenged and uh, spreads and it's, it's difficult for a discipline when 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 most of the way the discipline is articulated is on paper or in in in, in the written world in the written word but a naturalizing epistemology is a, an attempt to get it closer to the way people would deal with knowing in their on the ground lives as opposed to in their uh, in their in their lofty attics. Yeah, just just to go back to what you were saying about interdependence, would you have some examples of in, in the way that beings on this planet are interdependent upon each other? Oh, well, I, I guess I, I look to um, my in, my involvement in 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 feminist philosophical circles there, where uh, women have often had experiences in isolation that acquire validity and affirmation when the experiences are discussed and elaborated and so on. I, I think this is true of of many political experiences, not just feminist feminist political experiences, but many many of the experiences that people have are interdependent in the sense that our, our discussions illuminate them, our discussions make it possible to understand, oh, that's it, I understand what you were talking about. Oh, that's it, I understand what that idea means. And it's why, for instance, in this current lockdown, I believe that, that students are disadvantaged in, in how they would be learning epistemology, because when you learn it, only when people talk it at you, as opposed to as a, as a negotiated, knowing it seems to me is a negotiated practice. Uh, it's not radically and freely negotiated because there are limitations on all sides. But uh, when it becomes a, a, a conversational, a discursive undertaking, when you can talk about it in class and argue back and forth or argue back and forth in seminar groups and so on, then knowing becomes a much more, uh, becomes a discursive practice and becomes closer to the way knowing operates in in people's lives as opposed to on, on boring textbook pages. Now, I suppose that's the importance of interdependence between students. Or, or I mean, even interdependence in, in small seminar classes and so on, but with... with... So when, when you ask about how I developed the idea of, inter, of ecological thinking, I suppose it bears on this because it comes as a form of resistance to thinking about things or events or experiences in isolation as, as separate or autonomous entities or occurrences that stand alone. I suppose they often may be, but thinking ecologically shows the limitations of this discrete separated individuation, if perhaps only tacitly. And I'm not saying it always has to be, but often it's how I find my way into thinking about things, uh, ideas and places and locating them, situating them uh, in, in, in the world. And it's why I guess the, the orthodoxy of Anglo epistemology in the early 20th century was, seemed to bear so little resemblance to how people actually go about knowing. Because knowing really seems to me to be uh, a social political process, not just because we learn it at our parents' knees or in, our, in school with our, with our 
with our school children, but, but throughout our lives, it's a, it, it needs to be an interactive process and it's really difficult when it isn't. So the dangers of autonomy, there, there are a few more of your questions bear on this. You ask, what are the dangers of autonomy? And I think that what are the dangers of autonomy is that it produces the, the misconception that one can know in a sealed, enclosed sort of vacuum sense without, without any checks and balances. And I, I can't see how that can amount to, to, uh, to knowing. Um, similarly with the dangers of autonomy, um, I think there's a line in Wittgenstein, or I'm not sure where it is. I think it's a line in Wittgenstein who says, as an isolated individual, I cannot know what my experiences are. And I think that's a really valuable, valuable, valuable thought about not naturalism and advocacy and, and uh, the role of advocacy. Uh, the dangers of autonomy fall into the counter side of the counter side of that thought as well, because uh, I can be absolutely convinced about my own rightness, but if there's no interaction, no testing against, not just agree, not both against the world and against other people's views, then that, that security or that certainty seems to me to be quite ephemeral. I mean, so Anglo-American epistemology of the post-positivist era gave a really rather sad and impoverished picture of the individual knower, it seems to me, who sits there opposite cups on tables. Well, if there's good coffee in the cup, that might be fine. But, but beyond that, it gets, uh, it's very austere. And I guess the wisdom of ecological thinking, which you also ask, uh, bears precisely on this point as well, because the wisdom of ecological thinking, to the extent that it can be pursued and practiced, involves being able to understand as much as one can. And this isn't over in a specific knowing moment, but this is knowing across time, uh, understanding how things can be interconnected and who and alter and change in their interconnections, inter, alter and change in their significance for us as well as in our understandings of them. Uh, so ecological thinking involves also trying to think about the place of certain kinds of knowing in the world, both human and not human, and what that particular place or circumstance or situation does to or for uh, enhancing or inhibiting the knowing in question. So that, so you, when you say, when you ask, can I explain how I developed the idea of ecological thinking? I think it was partly along lines like that on the, in the everyday. And then uh, I haven't read a lot of ecology, so I would be a bad ecologist and a bad person to consult on whose ecology I read and what ecology I think about. But the, 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 the framework, the general framing of ecology of interconnectedness seems to me so, to have so much more explanatory power than the idea of isolated moments of knowing and isolated items of knowledge, and isolated knowers sitting, uh, knowing that a cup is on the table. That's the, the limitations are profound. And even though I've got a cup right here on my table, and I would challenge you to, 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 to doubt that it's here, I'll show it to you if you need it. Uh, the limitations of knowing that are, are vast, and the, and the, the, um, 
the limitations of taking it as an, an example are simple and profound. I mean, simple in the sense there it is. And if I show it to you, I don't think you'll challenge it. But the implications of it being there and why and how and how it plays into lives are more complex. Now, men, much of this is too complicated to be dealt with in an epistemology textbook. But it's not really, particularly if you look more to continental philosophy than to Anglo-American philosophy. I mean, if you look to, to uh, existential epistemology, if you look to ontological thinking, if you look to the ways uh, philosophers have come to think about being in the world and, and doing in the world and being responsive to and in the world, uh, that you can't get that worked into one-liners very easily. No, no, you certainly can't. Yeah, you, you ask, um, I think I've told you what I mean about uh, ecological thinking and, ecolo and um, whether I have any plans for future study of this field. Well, I'm 83 years old now. <laughs> I've kind of come to the... <laughs> I've kind of come to the creative uh, stopping point, I suppose. Um, I keep on thinking about things, these things and reading about them. Um, I think the dangers, I didn't answer the your question about the dangers of autonomy. I think they're tacit in what I'm saying, but I think they're profound because they lead one into that kind of isolation of that madman in a, in a, in a cell somewhere. Uh, and I think that that's quite bad. Um, with Rachel Carson's scientific practice, I think she exemplifies the interconnectedness of, of all the thinking and doing, including the way she got shat upon by um, people around her who discredited her and for uh, both for her both for her, both for being a woman and for being not an academic and so on. I mean, Rachel Carson exemplifies many of the things that I would attempt to to counter simply because of her being a woman at that time, being isolated and having no PhD, having no none of the so-called essentials for claiming credibility. Um, and that, that you could you could take her example and uh, interpret and, and analyze it in in uh, multiple different ways with regard to how people are, differently located with regard to their age, sex, gender, um, position in the world, not having a PhD already uh, detracted from her credibility, despite the fact that she probably knew more than lots of specialists in a very particular field. Um, so it's those sorts of things that, allow, that now that I've retired, allow me to think rather freely about them without having to fear that I'll fail an exam or whatever. Oh, that's that's a really good point. Oh well, that's that's great. So we'll finish up there. And I've been speaking with Professor Lorraine Code about ecological thinking. <laughs>